My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones from Caucus Baptist Church speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And for the last two weeks, we've been studying the doctrine of sin according to God's word as found in the book of Romans. And what we found is that God is, in fact, angry with sinful man. We can break down this section into three units. We saw God's anger, first of all, against those who don't even make a claim to be his followers. And that's chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. So we saw that if you are a person who makes no claim to follow Christ as your Savior, your Creator is angry with you, and rightly so, for rejecting him for four major reasons. The first one is that you know better than to live in rebellion against your Creator. Uh, through both your conscience and his creation, God has implanted within you the knowledge of his existence and his right to hold you accountable for your life. Uh, secondly, you've exchanged the one true God for an idol. That is, you're living for someone or something that God actually created and sustains, and you've chosen to really live for that and to wrap your life around that thing, that possession, that gift. Maybe it's like music or art or or that relationship, and that has replaced God in your life. Third reason why he's angry is you've chosen to exchange God's truth for a lie, and that is uh, the lie seems to be to adopt a different God instead of the one true God, and you think that that um, God of your life will, is, is more valuable than God himself. And then number four, you've chosen to live sinfully and to corrupt your life, and that has a whole litany of consequences not only against God himself, but against people that he created. Then in chapter 2, we saw that God is justly angry with those who claim to be his followers. So this group of people, probably the majority of my listeners on the radio, uh, in the focus of last week's message, we talked about why God would be angry with you and, and with me before our conversion. And we're also in trouble with the Lord. It's not like we're any better than the non-religious person. And so what we saw from that study was that God is going to judge everyone fairly. So sometimes we who are religious or think we hold higher moral standards, we expect God to judge others who sin against him, and we expect God's going to do that fairly. But we don't expect him to judge us fairly as individuals, and that's obviously a problem because God is saying, no, I'm going to judge everybody, not just the irreligious, but the religious as well. And then we also saw that knowing the truth and living it are two vastly different things. So just because you know the truth by attending a church or reading the scriptures doesn't mean you live it out. Jesus said, knowing the truth can set you free, but to know what is right and not to do it only makes you more responsible for your disobedience. So many times religious people are even in a worse spot because they know what they're doing and that it's wrong. And we also saw last week that no religious rite or ceremony is more important than what God sees in your heart. So you can go through baptism, confirmation, church membership, ordination to gospel ministry, any other ceremony. Uh, that doesn't cleanse your heart from sin. Only faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross can make forgiveness possible. So at the end of chapter 2, we saw that, yes, God's angry with the irreligious person. He's angry with the religious person, too. And then in our study for today, we see that both of these groups, those who make no claim to follow Christ and those who do, God is angry with both of these groups because of the harmful and evil acts they commit against God and those he created. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, we're going to see three major questions that some ask as they ponder what 
this whole thing means about the truth about our own human sinfulness. And question number one, maybe some of you feel this way, is, well, if religion doesn't make me a better person, maybe we should just throw out all religion and religious rights. And that's the first four verses of chapter three, that question being addressed. And there's a second question, well, if God is glorified in my sinfulness, and quite frankly, God is glorified in everything that he does. So if that's true, if God is glorified even in our sinfulness, then why would he be just to judge me for my sin? So that's a question addressed in chapter three, verses five to eight. And then the last question that is addressed is, are there some groups, maybe the Jewish people with the Old Testament law, or let's just say religious people, who are better than others? And so that question will be addressed in chapter 3, verses 9, down to verse 18, and then verse 19 and 20 are some conclusions. So basically, I think today, one of our attitudes toward the doctrine of sin is that we try to imagine that the holiness of God is somehow canceled out by the love of God. And let me just say, that isn't so. And so the doctrine of sin is a very important thing to consider. God spends quite a bit of time in his, in this uh, section talking to us about it, and we better take it seriously. So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, give us grace as we look into your word. Give us courage, because what you point out about our hearts, it's like an MRI of our spiritual nature. And Lord, it's, it doesn't show a good picture. It shows a diseased heart that is far from thee without Christ's intervention. And so we pray that we would be courageous enough to look into it, to, to realize that our religious affiliation will not save us, that whatever rights we have gone through does not change our heart, and that, Father, we need a changed heart in order to be justified and be, and be cleansed. So we ask for your grace and help to understand your word and how it applies to each of our lives as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and ask that first question in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, if you can follow along in your Bible. And the question is this, is there any advantage to religion or religious rights? And we're talking not just about anything, but we're talking about things that are actually taught in the Bible. And so this question could be asked in, in maybe a little bit different ways to help you understand it better. Since both religious and non-religious people are both condemned as sinners before God, should we just throw out organized religion entirely? And there's a couple of reasons why people might think that. And so let me go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? So the Jew is certainly a religious man. He's got his Old Testament law. And so the idea is, what advantage is there in the person who has a religious system? And then he answers this question much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So there's a couple reasons why sometimes people reason that we ought to just throw out what they will call organized religion altogether. And reason number one is that there is much falsehood taught as religious truth, and that, that is true, is it not? However, it is both unreasonable and false, and by the way, those are two different things, it's to assume that since there are many systems of false religion that teach error and even harmful things, that we are to conclude that no faith has the ultimate truth. And there's a basic false assumption here, maybe you can see it, 
just by listening to me, and that is we're assuming that all religions are basically saying the same thing, and that is just factually false. We are not saying the same thing. And so just to assume that, well, no one has absolute truth from God is quite an assumption. Now, there's a second reason why people want to just kind of throw out all organized religion completely, and that is even those who claim to follow the true faith, let's say there is one, and, and I can convinced that the claims of Christ are absolutely true, that Jesus Christ lived and died on a Roman cross, was raised from the dead three days later. These are not just myths, they are facts that happened. And so if there is a true faith, and let's just take the second reason, even though those who claim to follow the true faith are as sinful as anyone else, and that is also true as well. Without a changed life, every person, whether they hold to the Christian doctrine or not, they are sinful. So yet the reality should not surprise us, for that's exactly what chapter 2 was talking about. Paul has just got done telling us that many times the religious person, even the person who believes in the truth, gets angry with God for not judging others while not believing God will judge him. Further, there's a vast difference between knowing the truth and living it out. We also saw that religious rights, even the good ones, are not more vital than your heart. So based on these reasons, many conclude that organized religion, as they call it, should be just ditched completely because there's much falsehood taught as truth, and even those who would say have the true faith are sinful like everybody else. But since the Apostle Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he foresaw that many would be thinking this, and so he addressed this issue in those first four verses. And what he says is there were many advantages under the Old Testament economy to Old Testament Judaism. Now, what advantages besides the—he'll list a major one, by the way, in verse 2—but what advantages would there be if you were an Israelite growing up in the days before Christ, what would be the advantage of belonging to the community of faith versus eliminating organized religion altogether? Because you get keep in mind something, folks, and that is whenever you say we're going to just tear something down and we're, we're going to just get rid of a system, you need to think about what's going to come in place of it. And there's lots of examples historically of this. One of them would be the French Revolution where Yes, there were definitely excesses in France before that took place. I mean, Marie Antoinette has famously said about the poor in her country, let them eat cake, which is basically saying she didn't really care about the poor. The problem was they tore the system of the monarchy down in France, but they replaced it with an atheistic system where literally they were changing how many days were in the week. They scrapped everything. They were executing people in mass just for being connected with the royal family, murdered just multitudes of people. It was an absolute train wreck. So we have to think about the other side of the issue, and that is if we tear everything apart, we just throw everything away, what are we going to miss and what's going to replace it? And just off the top of my head, I was thinking, okay, what advantages would you have? If you're growing up in the nation of Israel and you are following Judaism, which was the true faith before Jesus Christ's coming, they were looking forward to the Messiah. So you'd have, first of all, fellowship, part of the whole obedience to the law. You'd come to feasts three times a year, times of great joy. People would be getting together from all across the country. You'd be meeting relatives, making new friends. I'm sure there's many marriages that will eventually come out of 
those meetings. I mean, it'd be a wonderful time of fellowship. You'd also lose moral accountability. Because of the laws of God, there was an accountability system of obedience to the law. And certainly there were penalties for disobedience. These are things that are necessary to have an orderly society. There was also purpose in life. People realize that my life isn't just going to be, you know, I'm here for for 60, 70 years and I'm gone and that's it. They're looking forward to an eternity, especially those that were not part of where the, the Sadducees were, where they thought that death was it and there was no eternal life. But the majority of Jewish people, even in Jesus' day, were believing that there is life after death. And that, te- that gives you a purpose in life. There's also a great comfort in sorrow to when you lose a loved one. If that believer was a person who, who knew the Lord, you're looking forward to seeing them again. There's also direction in decision-making because you learn from God's Word how to, how to make decisions. There's more justice in society. By the way, no society has perfect justice. You know, in our Pledge of Allegiance, we talk about liberty and justice for all. And people can slander that, and they can say, well, we've, we've never had liberty and justice for all. And, well, that's true. I mean, what system in the world, in world history, what government has truly given liberty and justice for all? It's, it is something we're striving for. It's not that we say we are at perfection at it. Um, and, but it's a, it's a good statement to remind us this is what we're looking for. This is what we want. Then you think about also there's a common worldview that led to a far greater unity in society. So there are many advantages to Old Testament Judaism. So Paul is not slandering that. He says, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit is there in circumcision? That would be one of the major rites of Judaism. He says, much in every way. But there is one major advantage of growing up in the nation of Israel, even before the days of Christ. And here's what it is. He says, chiefly, mainly, here's the main advantage, because to them were committed or were entrusted the oracles of God. The Jewish people in the Old Testament were given the very words of God. So despite their failures, the Jewish people of the Old Testament era had access to the very words of God. And how can you calculate that blessing? I was just reading the story of the mutineers from the Mutiny on the Bounty. Many of you may have heard that. You may have seen a movie on that. Historically, there was a, a ship, uh, an English ship called the Bounty, and the English captains in that era, we're talking late 1700s, were notably cruel. You know, ran what we call now a tight ship because their rule was law. And sometimes the the captain, if his personality was such, could be way over the top. And so there was a group of sailors on the bounty, and they got extremely angry with the captain. Now, you have to understand that mutiny in English law is a capital offense. So if you are a mutineer and you get caught, you are executed. So there was a mutiny on ship, and the, the, the captain, and his name, I believe, was Blythe, he was set on a small vessel with the, his loyal mates who would not go along with the mutiny, and they were just left adrift. But uh, let me go back to the ones who were the mutineers. They evidently landed on the island of Tahiti, and and so realizing that they would be discovered eventually and then executed, they decided to try to flee to a very tiny remote island called Pitcairn that had been actually misidentified as far as the coordinates as where this island was. And so it made it, it was only like a mile 
uh, across and and maybe just a little bit more length. It was it was a very tiny island out in the middle of the Pacific. Think of it partway between the United States and Australia. And so these men felt like they could get on that island and they would be safe from the authorities. And so there were of eight Englishmen, one Scotsman, six Polynesian men, who were again local people, uh, uh, 12 Tahitian women, and one baby girl that sailed. And January the 18th, they landed on Pitcairn Island, which was completely uninhabited at the time. Now, the former crew members of the bounty then wanted to make sure they would never be discovered by the British Navy. So they burned the bounty, and, they, of course, they took aboard a everything before they did that. And the mutineers, by 1793, so that's a, a, about three and a half years later, had so abused and offended the remaining Polynesian uh, men, particularly, and the women. And they were just abusive. They had married, probably, there was probably polygamy going on. It was just a, a moral train wreck with these mutineers. And so they had so angered the Polynesian men that the Polynesians stole the sailors' weapons, and they decided they were going to kill all nine of them. Now, they were not successful in killing all nine of the sailors. They got they got five of the nine. Of the four remaining mutineers, one committed suicide, and a second threatened to kill multiple children unless his demand to marry the widow of one of the murdered mutineers was met. So the other two sailors who were still left, they had this third guy over, and they killed him. And so now you just have two of the original mutineers left. One is named John Adams. The other is named Ned Young. But around that time, Young and Adams, the last two survivors of the mutiny on the bounty that were on that Pitcairn Island, discovered, or at least became interested in, the bounty had a Bible on board. It was on in the bottom of a trunk, from what I read. And so Adams couldn't even read. And by the way, his first name is John. He's actually John Adams, not the same Adams that we know of in colonial America. But John Adams couldn't read, but his friend Young could. And so Ned Young actually taught John Adams to read using the Bible. It seems that both men's lives were radically changed. Now, Young died only two years later, so he dies in 1800. But Adams lived for another 29 years after that, dying in 1829. And so Adams lived on to teach out the truths of Christianity, not only in his own life, but that he was learning from the scriptures. He taught that to the people still on Pitcairn Island. Now, it's interesting, when an American ship discovered the island in 1808, the crew uh, found a thriving community living in peace. Now, these guys had been all kinds of drunkenness, immorality, violence was going on until the two survivors got a hold of the Bible. In 1814, two British ships also rediscovered the island. Now, that would be very terrifying to the one mutineer that's still left, and that would be John Adams, because he could be taken back to England and executed. Now, when the British ships rediscovered this island, they found 46 mostly young islanders, and they were all doing well. One young man was a descendant of one of the wicked mutineers, whose last name, by the way, was Christian. And he was described by the two English captains as showing, and I'm quoting now, in his benevolent countenance all the features 
of an honest English face. They were saying this guy even looks the part of a godly young fella just in his countenance. God can and does change lives through his word. Romans 10, 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So let me just give you a couple thoughts before I get off this. Number one, get a Bible and read it. If you need a modern translation to understand it, go ahead and get it. But get a Bible and read it. God's word can change your life. Number two, get back to or start going to a Bible preaching church. Now, I know that many of you say, well, I've seen too many hypocrites in a church. Well, be honest with yourself. Is that all you've seen? I remember watching a whole uh, intellectual series on Christianity. It was very interesting. It was called The Truth Project. And in that series, they would interview several people, and they must have had a number of questions that they asked them. And so different times throughout the study, they would bring up one of the questions they asked, and they had several people that would be speaking to it, many of them non-believers, um, some believers. So you had a whole kind of uh, across-the-board gamut. There was one guy on there, and I forget what his first name was, but he ran a tattoo parlor, I think it was out in California. And one of the things that they, when they asked him about church, he said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm never going back to church. You know, I went there when I was a kid. And, you know, too many hypocrites and, oh, the whole, whole line. But later on, they talked to him and asked him some other questions, and he brought this up. He said, you know, there was an older lady in that church who really took an interest in me. And she, and he kind of almost teared up a little bit. You know, she was an example of what a true Christian was all about. You know what I thought about that? That man knows. Yeah, you can look at the hypocrites if you want to. But the reality is he also had examples that he testified of himself, of people who were real. So it's not just enough to just say, well, you know, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of false Christians. Maybe we ought to just throw the whole system out. I don't know if you've thought of it, but that's typically, that's how communism has come into so many countries. And one of the things that they'll do is the communists will criticize the establishment for corruption, which is, by the way, a very easy thing to do. If you're familiar with the communist takeover in Vietnam, there was the, the government in Vietnam before communism came in was debate. It was not good. My son's a history teacher. We've talked about it. And one of the things that actually was a, a match that really kind of lit the fire for the spread of communism even more and the revolution that eventually took place uh, that leads then into the Vietnam War was there was a man who was so upset by the corruption of the government, he literally set himself afire and burned himself to death in protest. And of course, you can understand the government was evil. And there was a lot to not like about what was going on in Vietnam. The problem is, what did you replace it with? You're going to tear it all down. What did you replace it with? You think about what happened in communist takeover in Russia. Was the Russian czar system in many ways evil? Absolutely. Yeah, they had a lot of corruption in the system of the czar. You had what they called programs, where they would literally take a Jewish community from a town and just force them from their homes, from their properties, and just send them off packing. It was a horrible thing. There was a lot of corruption. It wasn't a perfect system. But what did you replace it with? You replaced it with communism, and the result was literally tens of millions of their, of their own citizens being starved to death by Stalin and people of his ilk, Lenin, others. 
What a, it was a vicious, wicked system. If you ever read the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, he lays out in great detail the horrific results of communism and the lies that the West was believing about it during m- many of those years. What a, what a vicious system. So you've got to keep in mind that when you think about dismantling a whole system, sometimes the solution is worse than the problem. And so this is a common attack on Christianity, and that is you lop Christianity in with all the other religions, and it's not the same. Our claims are that the God of the Bible is our creator, that the coming of the Savior was prophesied for thousands of years, and there's no doubt about that fact. You can find it throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ was that promised Savior, that Jesus Christ then was and is the eternal Son of God, and as such, He was born of a virgin, as was prophesied. He lived a perfect life. He died on a Roman cross for all of our sins. He was literally buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose bodily from the dead, proving his claims to be the Son of God. That's Christianity in a nutshell. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Hinduism is not the same. It teaches that everything is God, and God is everything. On the other side, Judaism is saying that Jesus Christ is not God's Messiah, although I will hasten to add there are Jewish believers who do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But the typical rabbinic Judaism does not believe that. They they would not accept that. So again, they're not the same as Christianity. When you look at Islam, Islam is Unitarian. What I mean by that is they absolutely repudiate any thought that Jesus could be the Son of God. In fact, Islam teaches that calling Jesus God's Son is the unpardonable sin. You can't say these religions are all the same. They're not. So if you tear down all churches and you just abandon all churches, how do you replace them? Take them out of the communities. What happens? Where the fellowship for many people? Where is the teaching of the Word of God for the people? Where is the fountainhead of evangelism of the lost? Where is compassion ministry? Do you realize how many churches in the inner cities and even out in the country are ministering to people all throughout the area? So thus far we've been asking, are there any advantages to to true religion and religious rights? And what Paul is saying is, yes, there are. There are many advantages. But the major advantage is access to God's word that that was entrusted to the Jewish people, speaking specifically of the Old Testament. He also says that the unbelief of some, and that unbelief, it's leading to a lifestyle that is demonstrating that unbelief. So listen listen to verse 3 again. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief, and that word unbelief here can be translated, will their unfaithfulness. So get the picture. These people are people who are going to church And we're going to assume now that they're going to a Bible preaching church, a good church. But they really don't believe in their hearts. And what you're seeing, why you know that's true, is because they're not practicing it at all. So, yes, they learn in church that you should do unto others as you would want done for yourself. And then they go out into the business world on Monday morning and they just take advantage of everybody. Well, their unfaithfulness is an obvious proof of their unbelief. You just heard a sermon, you're supposed to put other people above yourself, and you're turning right around and just going completely the opposite way. Well, what are you saying? You're saying, I really didn't believe that. All right, so he says, will their unfaithfulness or their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Does that mean that we throw out what God said, that God's word isn't true? 
And his answer is, certainly not. It's the strongest way you can say, absolutely not. He says, he goes on, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Even if every person on the planet, and this is not true, but if every person on the planet said they believed the truth of the word of God and then went out and lived the complete opposite, showing that they really didn't believe, even if every person was a liar, God's still true is what Paul is saying. As is written, he goes on, he quotes now from the Old Testament, that you might be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now, what's he saying by that? He's saying there are many then who claim to believe the truth and do not truly believe. And there are many who do the religious rituals who do not believe. So whether it be going to church or baptism or giving or church offices that they may hold or church ministries. But he says their unbelief is borne out by their unfaithful lifestyle. And the unbelief of professing believers has no effect on the faithfulness of God. God will still keep his word and he will bless his children. He will honor his principles. So even if every single person in the world, which isn't happening, if they all turned away from obedience to the Lord, that doesn't affect the faithfulness of God one iota. That's what he's saying. So that God would be true to his word even if every person was a liar. So we can say all of God's words will be proven true, and no one will be able to convict God of falsehood. You are not going to win that case. You're not going to stand before God one day and show him where he didn't keep his word. That just isn't going to happen. So the question is, are there any advantages for the Jewish person growing up in the Old Testament or the religious person today who's following the faith of Christ? Are there any advantages to doing that and, and following whatever rites and ceremonies are involved in that, and the answer is absolutely yes. Well, then there's a second question. Is God unjust to pour out his wrath on sinners? And that's verses 5 to 8 of chapter 3. So it says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. So the argument starts by saying, well, God displays his righteousness in contrast to our sinfulness. And there's truth in that. God will use all things ultimately for his glory. And even though it can be very dark and evil, the things that we do against God, God still can use that as, as a way to bring him glory and his own eternal purposes. So then in our human reasoning, we try to follow and say, well, if God gets the glory even from human sinfulness, God then God gets glory from my sinfulness. All right. And then we go on to reason, if God has a purpose, even in my sinfulness, is it unjust to still judge me for my sin? I mean, if he's going to get glory for it anyway, he's benefiting, and then he's going to judge me. He says, I speak as a man. That's human reasoning. Paul goes on, he says, certainly not. God is not being unjust to judge us, for then how will God judge the world? And the reality is, God will judge the world. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25 Abraham calls the Lord the judge of all the earth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9, Solomon wrote, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the sight of your eyes. But he says at the end of that verse, But know thou that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. The idea is this. God is watching. So if I use my youth for evil, and of course many people do that, if I use my strength, to beat up a, a weaker person, or to my use maybe my mental abilities, my, my ability to speak well and, and, and put thoughts together. If I use that to verbally abuse someone, 
and to tear people down and to humiliate someone. God's going to bring me into judgment. There is a judgment day coming. I'll give you another verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. I'll start with verse 13. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or bad. So God is going to judge everything. So it really doesn't matter that God's still going to get glory. Whatever happens, we are still accountable to him. It doesn't, that's just human attempts to get out from under the judgment of God. So Paul goes on with the argument uh, against God's judgment. He says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And so there were some that were even not only teaching this foolishness, let's just do evil, and God's going to bring good out of it anyway. And then he went on to say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, can you imagine some people were actually saying, well, that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching, that since you know God's going to get glory in everything, so we can live any way we want, it doesn't really matter, I can, I can do whatever I want to get ahead, God will get the glory for it, and so it doesn't matter how we live, and Paul is saying that is a slander, it's a slander that was leveled against him personally, and he answers that by saying their condemnation is just. So this has to be false. This idea that God won't judge the world because God clearly says he will. And those who claim that Paul was teaching this doctrine are justly condemned. Paul is saying their, their condemnation is just. So the question is, is God unjust to judge sinners? And the answer is absolutely not. He will judge each of us. Well, that leaves us back in a bad boat, doesn't it? Leaves us in the, the idea that we're going to be accountable before God. And so that brings us to question number three. Is the religious person better than everyone else? Now, we've kind of answered this in chapter 2, but Paul really gets into it here in these last verses of this section. And so let's read it. I'm starting at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Okay, so are we who are religious? And let's say that we have the true faith of Christianity because we are accepting Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for our sins. Okay, so are we who are religious, are we better than the non-religious person? And he says, no, not, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. Now, the Jewish person, he's a religious guy. The Greek person, he's, gen, he's making generalizations here, okay? But the, the Greek person is the non-religious guy. We have charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. So we've already gone that place. And so, you know, he, he starts in on some specifics. And before I get into that, let me just say, if you're not certain, you're saying, well, pastor, I, you know, I've been a good person all my life, and I just can't fathom you saying that I'm as sinful as the non-religious person. I just really can't handle that. I mean, I've been, whatever you were in your church, maybe you were an altar boy, or you were involved in the youth group, or maybe you're the president of the youth group, or maybe you went to church and you got all those Sunday school pens they used to give out years ago. And you say to yourself, I just can't handle, well, let me just say this, this is what God is saying. I didn't write this. But I want you just, if you're struggling with that, just consider just the Ten Commandments as an example. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What that means is you love nothing, and you put nothing ever ahead of God. So if you had a choice between going to your niece's or wedding, and it happens to be on a Sunday, 
or you're going to worship God as he's commanded. We ought to worship him. Well, you're, you're going to always choose God. So have you always done that? And it means that I don't love God less. I love him more than I love anything he gave me, any creation he gave me. No other gods before me. It means I love him more than my spouse. I love him more than my kids. And I'm always making those choices. Love God first. Do you always keep that? Because that's the commandment. And the commandment isn't, well, do 95%. The commandment is, this is what you do all the time. All right, here's commandment number two, do not make a graven image. Now, what that means is you don't have a right to make up your own God. So you don't have a right to say, now, pastor, I don't think God's like that. We don't have the right to do that. Because what the scripture actually says is, yes, God is like that. He is more holy and righteous than anything, anyone we've ever experienced. And so he doesn't grade on the curve. He's absolutely perfect, and, and that's what he expects, is absolute perfection. So I'm, I'm not saying there isn't forgiveness provided. We'll get to that. But if we're going to understand our sinfulness, we need to understand, you don't get to make up your own God. You don't get to say, well, that's not how I view God. God's saying, this is what I'm like. Now, what are you going to do with it? You don't have a right to make a great image. Number three, you don't have a right to take God's name in vain. Boy, do people do that today. Oh, my, and they put God's name in there just because they're surprised about something, because they like something, and they're actually taking his name in vain. Another way we can take God's name in vain is we can not be concerned about his testimony. And that's not that's bringing reproach upon God's name. Taking God's name in vain. Number four is remember the Sabbath day. Now, the Jewish people were command, commanded to set aside a day of worship and are you making sure that you worship God every week, that you're taking that time and making that effort? Now, again, some of you can't get there because of health reasons. That's certainly understandable. But when we have the health and the ability, are you doing it? Are you going to church? Are you uh, taking that day for him? Number five, honor your father and your mother. Have you always done this? Did you ever speak back to your parents? Say, well, my parents think they're, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, that's wonderful. But what does God think? What does God know to be true? Did you ever go behind their back? and do things that you knew were wrong? Did you ever do things that were dishonoring to them? Have you treated them with respect as they have gotten older? Have you taken care of them? Because that's part of honoring your parents. There's a lot to this commandment. Number six, do not murder. Now, I know you say, well, good, I've, I've, I've never murdered anybody. Well, that's good. I would just point out that Jesus said in his kingdom that having hatred that is not there's no reason for it. You just find hatred for a person. He said that was as serious as murder. As far as the, he said that would actually bring a death sentence. That, that's how serious it is. I do not commit adultery. Listen, I remind you that Jesus said to look on a woman to lust after her as a man, you've committed adultery in your heart. How many of us have broken that one? You should not steal. Have you stolen anything? Have you stolen time when you were on the clock? and you were stealing from your employer? Have you been honest on all your taxes? Have you stolen? Number 10, you not bear false witness. Have you ever told a lie? And I think all of us would have to say yes on them, and you shall not covet. The idea of covet is God says you're to be content with what I've given you. You ought not to be desiring what I've given to somebody else, whether it be his wife or his house or whatever he's got, servants or, or whatever that guy's got that you don't have, don't be sitting there and telling yourself that you want what he's got. Problem is not that God's law, by the way, is bad. All of those things are really, really good. If you had a world where we lived in accordance with those laws, we would have a wonderful place to live. No stealing, no lying, no adultery going on. 
No false gods being made up and worshipped, but by the way, is the source of a lot of our problems. No, you know, wanting to take other people's stuff. I mean, what, what, wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world that was like that? The problem isn't with God's laws. The problem's with us. So if God judges you faithfully and fairly, knowing all your thoughts, knowing all your actions, your words, everything, if God judges you according to those righteous laws, how are you going to do on Judgment Day? And if you're honest with yourself, as I have to be honest with myself, I'm going to be declared guilty, and it's not going to be close. Well, now we see Paul gives some specific examples, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, mainly in the Psalms here, an extensive description of our sinfulness. And again, it takes courage to listen to this, folks, because we don't like to see this about ourselves. It literally is like getting an MRI and seeing cancer in your body. Nobody wants to see that. But just be honest with yourself as he goes down through here. He says, as it is written. So this is not something he's just making up off the top of his head. This is something that's in the Old Testament that's been written down. It's actually in Psalm 14 where he's starting out. There is none righteous, no, not one. So when we start out, we consider our character. And morally, he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none of us who is good. There is none who understands. That's our understanding and means we don't understand. We don't get God. There is none who seeks after God. Our affections, we're not drawn to the Lord. We're not seeking him. Actually, if you're seeking him at all, it's a miracle. And it's because he is working in your life, which is encouraging, by the way, because you won't seek him on your own. How about our truthfulness? They have all turned aside. So we're turning away from the truth. How about our worth? He says, they have together become unprofitable. You're not, you're not profitable to God as a sinner. Neither am I. This is not you merely. This is me too. This is all of us. He says, what about our actions? He says, there is none who does good, no, not one. Now, again, everything is tainted by our sin. That's the problem. It's not that we never have done anything heroic. The idea is this. There's always been the taint of sin on all of it. All of it. How about our speech? He goes on. He says it's death-giving. He says their throat is an open tomb. We actually really can cause great harm with our speech. It not only is death-giving, and it can really... You think about young people that are excited about getting married, and because of what they say to each other and the, and the mean comments that come out over the next months or years, this couple that loved each other and truly did love each other and were so excited about saying, I'm going to live the rest of my life with you, and their tongues have brought death to that relationship. Some of you have been through those waters. You know what I'm talking about. Paul says our tongues meet out death. They're like an open tomb. He says they're also deceitful. He says with their tongues they have practiced deceit. And so we lie sometimes to those that we love the most. He says they're poisonous. The poison of asp, that's a type of serpent, is under their lips, a poisonous serpent. He says it's just like poison coming out of our mouths. And he says they're vile. He says whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Does that describe your tongue? He talks about our path. Where are we headed? Well, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's a lot of violence, and we rush to that. And unfortunately, I can think of times as a child where I was violent with people around me. There's a lot of heartbreak. Our path leads to heartbreak. He says, destruction and misery are in their ways. There's a lot of conflict in our path. This is the way of peace they have not known. And all this boils down to where we really are in our faith. And that is, he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God 
before their eyes. Every time you sin intentionally, every time I sin intentionally, for whatever reason, it's because at that moment I didn't fear God. So again, if you were to stand before God without Christ's death on the cross for you to provide forgiveness for your sins, would God find you guilty or innocent of being a vile sinner against him? And I will tell you as truthfully and as, as compassionately as I can, you will be found guilty. And I do not say that because of any rejoicing on my part, but I'm trying to lovingly warn you that that's why you need the Savior. That's why you need Christ. So the conclusion of the doctrine of sin is verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. It says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what's the conclusion of God's moral law? Just by looking at the Ten Commandments, just, just stopping even there. God's moral law will judge you whether you believe it or not. Whether you want to believe in the moral law of God, whether you want to believe in the Ten Commandments or not, you're going to be judged according to that standard. And you need to honestly look at your life and the life of, in the light of those Ten Commandments and realize you don't keep them. And it's not close. That's the truth for me, too. Number two, if you stand before God without Christ's forgiveness, then you will be found guilty. Number three, doing the good deeds contained in God's law cannot undo your guilt for falling short of God's perfect standards. So if I'm a thief and I've stolen, let's say, something pretty valuable, some, some diamonds from somebody's house, and now I'm going to come and be sentenced, it's really not going to make a lot of difference that I was a Boy Scout leader. It's not going to make a lot of difference that I was a pastor. Matter of fact, it's going to make you even more angry about that, wouldn't you? You'd say, well, you knew better. And that would be true. And so why would I expect to be different when I come before God? My good deeds cannot undo my bad ones. It doesn't work that way. So doing the good deeds contained in God's law cannot undo your guilt for falling short of God's standards. So number four, the law was never meant to save you. It was meant to reveal your sinfulness to you. It was meant to show you where you're really at. Then we begin to see where we really fall. And God's law is perfection, folks. You're not going to find fault in the Ten Commandments. And what God really wants you to do, and he's sending out messengers in his mercy so that you will not have to come under his wrath. He's doing this on purpose so that you can be saved. But what he's doing is he's showing by his law you fall way short. And you're not ready to stand before me. And the bottom line is you need a savior. So when you think about applying this, you don't want to go to an extreme. And there are three extremes where people dodge Jesus because they don't want him. They see these issues of sin. So one extreme is you try to solve your problem by uh, being more religious. That's not going to help you. The deeds of the law aren't going to save anybody. Number two. Since both religious and non-religious people are equally sinners, you just throw in all organized religion altogether. So I'm just going to just ignore whatever anybody says to me, and it, it doesn't matter. Number three is then you despair of ever making peace with God. Well, I just guess I'm, I'm going to be in trouble, and I just don't even try. In reality, the answer is simple. It's actually the next two verses. Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Just like we all, religious and non-religious, are sinners, so Jesus Christ can save the religious and the non-religious. His sacrifice is for everybody. He would save you. He died in your place. And it is simply repenting of your sin, admitting to yourself and to God, I've been wrong. I've been a rebel against God. I knew better. I've done a lot of things that I knew were wrong. And if I stand before God, I'm going to be guilty and truly being sorry about that. When you repent of your sin and then you turn to Christ by faith, just like the thief on the cross said, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Would you save my soul? That's how you get saved. It's not complicated. It's repentance and faith in Christ as the Savior, putting your faith in him, just simply crying out to him to save you. I was just reading this morning about this flight uh, a guy by the name of Walter Wyatt Jr. took. He was flying from Nassau, evidently in the Bahamas, to Miami, Florida. That's a trip that would normally take him in his plane, and I think the Beechcraft him only 65 minutes normally. But on December 5th, 1986, he had had his navigational equipment looted out of his airplane. And with only a compass and a handheld radio, he still felt, because he'd made this trip a number of times before, evidently, he felt that he could make it. And so he flew with the skies that were blackened by storm clouds, expecting that he could make that just with a compass and with his handheld radio. Now, when his compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded he was headed in the wrong direction. Because, you know, you get into the clouds and it's kind of darkened. It gets a little bit dicey. And, and so he flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something. And he could see some things out in the, in the water, but soon he knew he was lost. So he puts out a mayday cry. And so the Coast Guard sent out one of their planes called a Falcon in search uh, for this uh, Walter Wyatt Jr. They got to him, but the problem was Wyatt was really, really low on fuel. They found a place, it was only six miles away, where he could land, and Wyatt couldn't make it. His plane sputtered, he ran completely out of gas, and had to basically fly into the, the sea. And so Wyatt flew down, and as the guy, of course, is watching in horror, from the um, from the Coast Guard plane, um, he sees the plane go down. He really didn't see it, it come to the surface and, you know, and look like it was going to stay up any length of time, and he didn't see any pilot. So uh, he did a couple passes around there and um, realized he needed some additional help, so he, he flew back. Now, What's going on? There's, it's stormy weather, by the way. This is a true story. It's not something I'm making up. You can actually read about it in, um, I think it was the October 87 edition of Reader's Digest. Um, the guy's name who wrote it was um, Peter Micklemore. Anyway, Wyatt's down there, and he did survive the crash. Now, I, he was bloodied um, from it, and uh, the plane, he got out on the wing, and the plane sunk almost immediately, which is probably why by the time the the uh, the um, the Falcon from the Coast Guard came back. He didn't see any plane. So Wyatt's stuck, and he's got a life jacket. He got that out. Interesting. In the Reader's Digest article, it mentioned that Wyatt asked God to forgive him for his sins. Isn't it interesting? 
that I don't know, again, his background, but he knew he needed to do that. Um, and so he asked God to forgive him for his sins, and then he's he's trying to survive. Now it's when the when the air the Coast Guard guy gets back and they try to to um, get another uh, like a, a rescue. I think it was a helicopter to go out with them. They ran into ter- horrific weather. They weren't able to they weren't able to um, um, get out, and so they realized they were going to be in more danger. And they it was getting dark, so they actually turned back and said, we're going to have to look for him in the morning. Now, while he's down there, uh, Wyatt's, again, been bleeding some, and sure enough, he feels a hard bump against his body, and a shark had found him. They smelled the blood in the water. Wyatt then kicks the shark, wondered if he was going to survive the night. He actually managed to stay afloat, even though his flotation device was taking on water. Um, He stayed in, in there for the next 10 hours. In the morning, he still sees no airplanes, um, he sees another dorsal fin heading for him. There's a number of different sharks. If you read the article that came after him, and each time he, you know, in God's goodness, was able to kick them away and and be able to intimidate them off. <clears throat> but while that's going on, they finally did spot him from the um, uh, the rescue plane that came out that morning, and they said, you know, get moving. They sent a cutter out to get him. There's a shark targeting this guy. They could actually see the shark in the water. Um, the Cape York was the ship that pulled Wyatt to safety. And um, Wyatt climbs wearily out of the water. When he got into the ship, he fell to his knees. He kissed the deck. He had been rescued. You know, he didn't need encouragement techniques to get into that boat. He realized he could not save himself. He was going to die there. And you know what? That's really what the doctrine of sin is supposed to do for you and I. It's supposed to awaken us to the reality, I am without hope unless I have a Savior. That's what it's supposed to do. And it's to awaken you so you will know, I need a Savior. And that Savior, then, the Scriptures talks about, has come, has died for your sins, has resurrected to prove his identity, and he is the one you can put your faith in to save your soul. I pray that you'll do it. May the Lord bless you. Have a great day. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he frees.